Well, I'd love to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Ezra, chapter 3. We're going to continue to our study today of the great revival in the Old Testament where God saw fit to send the nation of Israel back to their homeland after they had been displaced for 70 years, and now they get to go back and begin a construction project. And that construction project is going to be for the temple Later, it will be for the walls in the city, but right now, the temple is the priority. As we talked about before, that in and of itself speaks volumes. That God's priority would be for worship, and restoring, in this case, would be sacrifices and reestablishing the obedience for day-to-day obedience for Israel in the things that God instructed. And all of that happens before the walls, before the gates, before your security gets put in place. Worship is the priority. And so we've talked about that already in terms of seeing how God stirred up people to go back. And when He stirred them up, those that answered the call to return, they loaded up with their things. They were blessed by others with resources to go, not only for their traveling, but also for once they get there to be able to have the tools to do the job. But not only that, God used different people. He didn't just send back one classification of people. It wasn't just a bunch of brick masons to start standing things up. No, God sent back people with all different skill sets and giftment. We saw people last time that were um, the priest class. We saw the Levites who were the servants to them who helped prepare the offerings and the sacrifices. We got to see the servants who go and get the wood and bring in the water and take care of the menial task. We... We got to see the singers that God saw fit to send back people who would just be in a continual state of praise while the temple was being constructed. And so now in chapter 3, we get to see what God is doing to draw these people together because this is a key moment. If you're going to build something, people have to be united as one. And I think it's a great timing for our church to talk about this. This morning we were privileged to be able to put out some, some storyboards out in the atrium. If you didn't see them when you came in, check them out when, you, when you're going out the door today. But it's just some uh, uh, renderings or some drawings that show some real-life color pictures of what our new building across the street is going to look like. And next week I hope to come back and share with you the details about that. We've, we've come to the spot where this is what it is. The builder has put a price tag to that. We see where we are. We know what the bank is talking to us about. And so now we have a game plan. And I want to share that with you in detail uh, next week, Lord willing. And so, but go check that out. But and just as it was important for Israel um, to come together and unite around this project, it's important for us to do the same. We need to be as one when we come to this project. And so let's see what happens in Ezra chapter 3. And what does a revival look like? This is just another component of revival. I pray for revival for our church. I pray that God's Spirit would move among us. And when revival takes place, worship becomes number one. It's the number one priority. It's just the devotion of your life, of giving all that you are for all that He is. And I'm not just talking money. That's not the, the issue. The issue is self. We literally become generous of our lives and ourselves to give ourselves unto the Lord who gave Himself for us. That's what we're talking about here. Worship becomes the priority. Living for the kingdom becomes the priority. Sharing this great news of God becomes a priority. And when, when revival takes place, sin gets put away from, and it's no longer appetizing the way it was, and instead of that's the pursuit of the Lord. 
In revival, you see many people coming to know God and choosing now to become worshipers as well. And so I pray that for One Community Church that we would experience an incredible revival of God where His Spirit would move and we would know God showed up and God's doing things we cannot describe. It wasn't done through the means of men. And so this is what happens in Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month, verse 1, when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. What a story. They all made the trek from Iraq back to Jerusalem. It's a long journey. When they got back, they went back into their little, we think of suburbs, around Jerusalem, the small cities around, and they would have reestablished their homes in the places they were displaced from before. Now, time has passed, and now they're going to all join together and meet in Jerusalem. And the, uh, this phrase is so critical, as one man. Now, you're talking about nearly 50,000 people are in the recorded list of who went back, but when they join as 50,000 people, they are as one person. With one mission in mind and, and, and one objective, with only one God that they choose to serve. It's as in the book of Amos, he asked a question, the prophet did, he said, can two walk together unless they agree? Well, not very well. And you know what that looks like. If you're going on a walk with somebody and you're in agreement, you're just all going down the path real nicely. But as soon as a disagreement starts, well, then it kind of does one of these, and one of you is going off the other direction. Somebody might even stop walking, and we're no longer walking together. Well, this is described by Amos. Can two even walk together unless they agree? In Ecclesiastes describes this where Solomon says that two are better than one because together they have a greater reward for their labor. I think about this with Amy and I because oftentimes we go in two different directions um, to do ministry, do life and family issues. Well, we can accomplish more working together because we duplicate our efforts in going in different places. So two are better than one. At the end of the day, at the sum total of the, of the life at the Hoffman house, we accomplished more today because we were both engaged in the same purpose, not maybe in the same place, but under the same purpose, and so it duplicates the effort. Solomon said that if one falls, the other would pick them up so you're not by yourself. If, if one gets cold, the other can heat the other one up and share the heat. If, if an enemy seeks to overcome, they can stand together in opposition against that enemy and you're not alone. And he describes that a threefold cord is not easily broken and we know that. You take two individuals and bind them and weave them together like a braid where the Lord is the center strand. That's a cord that's not easily broken. It's what is being described here as one man they gathered at Jerusalem. Psalms, David said this, he said, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's so good and it's so pleasant. And we all understand this. If you think about it in, a, in your relationships, whether at home or in work or anywhere you are, and people are not in agreement or not in unity... It's not good and it's usually not very pleasant. You're not always sure. You're kind of walking on eggshells around everything. You don't know how this is going to go. Often you don't sleep well at night because it's, it creates such turmoil. This is a struggle for the New Testament church. We've been given mountainous amounts of instruction as the local church in the New Testament of how to live as one man. However big the congregation, 
but we unite as one man. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells the church there, he said, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which we are called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. There's the character. The character of unity is this lowliness, gentleness, long suffering, and bearing with one another in love. And then, then there's this endeavoring, because even with all of that, we still must endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I know this, that the Christ Spirit of God lives in me, and if you're a Christ follower, He lives in you. The Spirit is not divided. So what does divide people? Flesh. The self. It always becomes the self-issues. That's why in Philippians chapter 2, this won't be on the screen, but in Philippians chapter 2, Paul describes this, that, that we would be like-minded having the same mind being of one accord together, one cord wound together. And how does that happen? It, it's an issue of character. That through patience and humility and esteeming others and not focusing on self and valuing other people's things greater than our own things. And then he summarizes the whole concept and says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And he describes in Jesus' mindset when he came from heaven to earth to give his life for us on the cross that being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He was made in the likeness of men. He took upon himself the form of a servant and in humility gave his life and was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's the mind that all of us, if we share in that together, well, that's uniting, not dividing. Well, then Paul goes back in Ephesians 4. Let's go back there and look at the unity banner that we fly under here. In verse 4, he says, There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But verse 7 says, But... The banner is one, and then he says, but. But what? But to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Well, then he goes in to describe the diversity of engiftment that he puts in the church for the purpose of the church to be built. That we don't all do the same things, we don't share the same personalities, we don't all have the same opinions, we're not all the same. Praise God for that. But if we focus our attention on the one banner that we are under, and that is one God, one Father, one faith, one baptism, one truth, we're under that banner. That unites. But he still gives the diversity. And in this diversity, he says, to each was given a grace according to the measure of Christ, gift. In verse 12, then he says, for what reason? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all, not just some, but we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is uniting under the word of God, equipping the saints with the work for the work of the ministry. In verse 15, watch but speaking the truth in love. And we can speak the truth, but if it's not in love, then we're out of bounds with the Bible. 
What I said was true, but I didn't say it very nice. Speaking the truth in love may grow up in, in all things into Him who is the head, Christ. So who's the head? Christ is the head. The pastor's not the head. There's no board or no group of people that are the head. Christ is the head. From whom, verse 16, the whole body, now here comes us, we are the body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective work by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Every part contributes to something that causes this body to grow, but it doesn't give a description of how much is the part. Every part does its share. The bottom line is, is when all people unite under God and we are all of one heart and one mind with one word, here's what happens. Our focus becomes worship. We choose in our lives, we're giving ourselves unto God because He's worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. So then what happens is we then share in our, in our gathering together, we share in the ministry. We share each other's burdens. We, we share in prayer together. We share resources together. We, we come together and share our knowledge of the Word and our maturity. And all of this takes place in the body of Christ. Unto what? That we grow up into the head, Christ Jesus. It's always unto Him and not unto any individual. Well, this is what's happening now with Israel as they come back together. They are united as one. One man, 49,000 and change people are standing there. For one, under one God, with one mission, and one heart to accomplish what God set them out to do. This is what we, we've talked about this nearly since the day the church started. That God would grant to one community, we understand who the one God is. And we would grow in our understanding of who God is. That we would have one heart, one heart for the Lord, one heart for one another. That we would grow in our love as a church, our love for our community, our love for the world, that we would just continue that expression out as far as God would have us reach. With one mission. We unite together with one sole mission, and that is God left us here to make disciples, so we pursue to make disciples who love, learn, and live Jesus. And that's what we're about. That's what we do. Everything we do runs through that channel is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And so whether that's going somewhere else across the globe, whether that's engaging in things we do in our community, or whether that's building a building that's a tool for us to do ministry from, for the purpose of what? To make disciples who love, learn, and live Jesus. And so we're just trusting God for a tool to do that from. But it's essential that we come under one banner, and that is the banner of the Lord Himself. With one God, one heart, one mission. In the book of Ezra, chapter 3, they've gathered together. Now watch who stands up. Verse 2, Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren arose. And they built the altar of God of Israel, 
to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, this is fascinating stuff. If you like to look up names in your Bible, what do they mean? Because God's always telling stories. Joshua, as you might imagine, that name is the same as Joshua, which is the same as Jesus in the New Testament. Joshua means Jehovah is salvation. Jesus' name means Jehovah is salvation. Who stands up? Jesus. Jehovah is salvation stands up as the priest. He is the high priest. The priest, Jesus Christ, is our high priest. And what does he do? He builds an altar. Now, the altar comes before they've ever done anything else. They haven't built any walls yet. They haven't even started the construction of the temple. The altar was first. But it's interesting to note, Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is also the altar. Because the altar is what sanctified the gift. When a gift was brought, it was brought and then placed on the mercy seat or the altar itself. So the altar sanctified or set this gift apart. It would be different if the, if the man who owned a herd of sheep slaughtered one of his lambs out in the field. Well, that's, that's just slaughtering your lamb for taking care of your family. That's a side issue. That's just how you do life. Now you slaughter that lamb and bring that as an offering and you place it on that altar. That's a different ballgame. This is unto the Lord. This is a gift sanctified unto the Lord. The altar sanctified the gift. Jesus is our altar. We see this in the book of Hebrews where Jesus himself is the high priest. He is the altar and he's also the burnt offering. He's the gift that's being placed upon it because he gave his life for ours. He is the sacrifice. It is Joshua who stands up and builds this. I love this connection to the New Testament. In 1 John chapter 2, Verse 2 says, And he himself, referring to Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, we probably don't use the word propitiation in our everyday language so much. But what is it? That same word translated as propitiation is also translated as mercy seat. The altar where offering was made. Now notice... It says, He Himself is our propitiation. He is our altar. It also is a word translated as satisfaction or appeasement. Interesting, because what happens when Jesus offers Himself on the altar, that He Himself is the altar. When Jesus gives Himself, the Father is satisfied. In fact, as Jack read earlier from Isaiah chapter 53, at the very tail end of that chapter, it said, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. It pleased the Lord. Yes, the Lord was satisfied with the payment that was made for our sin through the blood of Jesus Christ the Lord. So now, this worship is uniting the people. They come together at the altar, and it is the Jesus altar. Worship is also what displaces fear. Why are they building this altar? They have no building. They have no walls. They have nothing. Verse 3, though fear had come upon them. This is why. You're going to learn a massive lesson right here. If you get nothing else out of today's message, get this. When they were afraid because there's no gates 
There's no walls. We have no protection. Now think back to what has happened. When, when they had gates and walls, the enemy came in and destroyed the gates and walls, took them captive and took them out of Jerusalem for 70 years. Try to imagine life now, no gates, no walls, no watchtower, no, no, no protection. We don't even have a building here. There's no temple. And now these guys are over here standing up an altar to start offering sacrifices unto the Lord. There's zero protection. What's the statement being made? The Lord is our protection. We're going to make these offerings unto the Lord. We're trusting God, as these ladies said a minute ago, trusting God for His provision. We're going to trust God for His protection. We don't know how He's going to do that. And sometimes it doesn't always look like we think it should. It doesn't even come in the time frame if we were writing the script the way we would. But God is the provider. He is the protector. He knows exactly. And though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases. They offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. You know, there's something powerful in fear. When we think of what fear does in our lives, we fear sometimes due to a perceived lack of security, whether it's financial security, food security, health security, whatever it is, if we perceive a lack of security, we don't know how this is going to go. I understand. I mean, we get to that spot where you're, you see the sentence playing out here, but there's a big blank at the end. And how you choose to fill in that blank dictates what's going to happen next in terms of your emotions, whether it's fear or not. Because we often will fill it in with things we don't even know. That may not even be true. It's not even real. But we believe it to be real and now we're full of fear. It can be fear due to lack of security. It can be fear based on past experiences. Very real. Like Israel. Good grief. They, were, they had been displaced from their home base for 70 years. That was a rough time. There were fatalities during that time. Families broken apart. That was a terrible, terrible time. The, the city, you realize whenever they were displaced, before that happens, the Babylonian Empire seized the city. Do you know what that means? They choked the city to death. They cut off all supply chains so nothing flows in, nothing flows out, so eventually all the resources that are inside that wall are consumed, and when you are at your weakest, most lame point and you're not defensible anymore, they come in and just wipe you out. You don't have the energy to fight. They were seized before they ever were conquered. Those are past experiences. You never want to live that again. That's terrible. There was th fear based on threats. We'll see this in the chapters to come in this experience, but as soon as they show up, everybody's asking, hey, what are they doing back? By the way, I rid of them. And what are you guys here for? As soon as they mention something about building and we're gathering together and all the noise about building that temple again and the enemy starts making threats against him and lawyers are getting involved and all that stuff. And we'll see that. We'll have David teach all that part. He can help us out on all the legal stuff. But, but let's see what happens at fear in the New Testament. 1 John chapter 4 says, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. Now stop. Do you know and believe the love that God has for you? Now, intellectually, you say, yeah, I know God loves me. Is that settled deep in your soul? That is the reality of you. God 
loves me. Well, how do you know? I will state that. I know God loves me. Well, how do I know God loves me? The scripture tells me, first, I want to believe what the Bible says, that God is love, for starters, and that God loved me so much that he was willing to sacrifice his son for me that I might have life in him. That's big love, especially after being a dad and knowing what that looks like to give your kids for someone else. And my love's not perfect, but God's love is perfect. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Now watch, we have a boldness in the day of judgment because there will come a day we give an account for our lives. It's called the believer's judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. You are not judged at that judgment as an unbeliever based on, I taught this last week, based on your works, which will always come up empty. No, at the day of judgment, you will be judged according to your relationship in the Lord. You're under the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're rewarded based on our, act, on our service unto the Lord and our worship and our devotion unto the Lord. There's a reward there or maybe lack of reward if we just choose to live carnal for the rest of our days. But there's no reason to fear this judgment. It's not like, hey guys, it's often, I hear this, that you know, you make a mistake and you have an evil thought or you say a bad word and it's like, boom, I'm just afraid God's going to burn my house down. Calm down. God is a loving Father. He's not going to wreck your life because you had a bad thought today. No, that is a fear of judgment that is not true and we, it's because we don't understand the love of God. There's no fear in love, verse 18. But perfect love casts out fear. Well, in this, I can trust God. He loves me. He gave Himself for me. So what is the greatest, most high fear in mankind? Death. It's number one. I mean, it's the number one is death. Right behind it's public speaking. And it's not, I'm not kidding. <laughs> number two on the list. Death is one. Public speaking is number two. The fear of death. You know, in the book of Hebrews says that because of the Lord Jesus Christ giving His life for ours and we have eternal life in Him, that it cast out the fear of death. I have no reason to have to fear death because when I take my last breath here, I'm in the presence of the Lord. Well, praise God. Now, I, I'm not looking forward to let's expedite the process. That's not my goal here. But I have no reason to live in a perpetual state of fear of something that could happen to me because I have a loving Father who's guiding my life and if, he wants to go, if I am going to be a man who gets sick and has an illness unto death, I still know this. The Lord is with me. If I die of a tragedy, the Lord was with me. Has the Lord and will the Lord ever leave me or forsake me? No! He promised that he would not do that. So I can rest in this love and it cast out the fear. Why? Because fear is tormenting. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We, we love him because he first loved us. And one of the great things, God gives a gift. Second Timothy says this, that he didn't give us the spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. This 
group of people have come together united as one man to worship. The priority was the altar. This displaces because of fear. Now worship chooses an obedient heart. is choosing from an obedient heart. Verse, verse 4, they also kept the Feast of Tabernacles as it is written. I want you to pay close attention to these phrases. I'm going to all accentuate them as I go. As it is written. They're going to keep this because it's written here. And offer the daily burnt offerings. This is a daily process. In the number required by ordinance. That's what was written. They know this. So this is obedience for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts. These were appointed days. They knew these days. Very specific. These were appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, set apart, and those who, of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. Now, you have in, in Israel's economy with the Lord, He set up a sacrificial system. The sacrificial system was to ultimately lead them to Jesus. They learned that a sin offering, for example, would cause an animal to die. Blood would be shed because I sinned, something died. A peace offering required the same. A burnt offering would be completely consumed. Our Lord was wholly consumed. Our Lord was the Lamb without blemish, without spot. He was the blood of the, the blood of the Lamb was spilled for us that we might have life in Him. He is the peace offering that made peace between the Father and between us. He is the reconciler. But not only were all these uh, offerings or sacrifices made according to what is written, but then there's this open latitude that says, if you just want to offer freely unto the Lord, knock yourself out. man. Whatever you want to bring to God, put it on that altar. It's unto the Lord. And the people did that. If you liken this in the New Testament, we do not need to kill animals anymore in order to offer those to the Lord. No, the, the Lord Himself was that lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So that compulsory aspect of sacrifice was made by Jesus. But does that relieve my responsibilities? There's a, a discipline that is completely that is taught throughout Scripture, and that is the discipline of giving unto the Lord. In their case, it was a compulsory offering that was made unto, the, unto God, a sacrifice that was made. And then there's the free will ones. This because you choose to. You get to the New Testament, and we're not under the same law of mandate that we all give X percent of everything we do, but there's a principle that's been guided from the beginning of our Bible all the way through that is a discipline for us. I was thinking back this week on when Amy and I got married. I was 20 and she was 19, and, and uh, I remember I was making about 550 an hour and Amy was making 485. And... Uh, you know, we made it. We were okay. We were able to get along all right. And so I remember when she got a raise, she was a teller at a bank, and she got a raise, and uh, that bumped her up to five fifteen an hour, I think. And so we went to Mexican Villa to celebrate. It was awesome. And, and she even got to buy Coke because we could afford it with the raise. Okay, so that was a big deal. No more water. All right, so... But I was thinking back to those days, but there was something that I learned in that that was trained in me, but also discipled in me through others, and that was... 
to tithe and to give and to give obediently unto the Lord. And Amy and I just started that process and that was just a normal part of our lives and has been since we were 20 years old. Just whatever the Lord prospers us to give a portion of that and there's automatic, just do that all the time because I, I want to have that discipline in my life, but it's also a priority of worship because I know my tendency. My tendency would be to keep that for me and always have a reason for why now's not the right time. I could invest that and multiply it, and when I'm older, I'll give a lot more. I could do that. I, I'll keep this for me because, after all, we're a growing young family, and we need these resources, and I just need to keep these things for me. The Lord knows He understands. Well, I could do that. I realize I could have I've invested or done things with those resources, but God instructed in my life to, to give obediently with discipline there. And it became a heart of worship for me, not grudgingly that God designed this. But you know what I've learned through the years is even though that discipline might be there and, and set, but then there's all these free will opportunities. There's always a, a ministry opportunity, a mission trip, a camp for a student. There's always something else, a building project, whatever it is that is outside the beltway of my normal, that this is where the free will comes from. And so we're observing this happen right here in the Old Testament. Well, it still happens today, which is why the work of worship comes out of this generosity to do God's work. In verse 7 it says, They gave also money to the masons and the carpenters, food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the permission they had from Cyrus, the king of Persia. This is such a great reminder. Because they're treasuring building this temple of the Lord. And Jesus said this in Matthew 6. He said, for where your treasure is, your heart's there. We're seeing the heart of worship. A group of people united under one banner to accomplish one thing. And the last verse I want to share with you that reminds us of this. It comes from the heart. And this is what God examines. He does not examine the how much. It's never the issue. It's always right here. He looks right at the heart of that matter. And watch how it's described. So let each one give as his purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves generosity. Why? Because he's a generous God. He gives us all things. He is the Father of lights who gives us all things to enjoy. He gave us life through Jesus Christ the Lord. He, as we know through the book of Matthew, He gives us the air we breathe and the food on our plate. And He's the one who gives all of that stuff. And most of the time, I don't even ask for it. Do you ever just step back sometimes and contemplate the volume of things that God has dispensed as a gift you never asked for and probably forget to say thanks for it a lot? And maybe you never said thanks for it. But God's still a giving and generous God. And you know what He's able to do when you and I have a generous spirit? Verse 8 says that God is able to make all grace abound toward you. That you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Does this mean that God's just going to prosper you with wealth beyond measure? No. He prospers you in grace. You are prospered in grace. It won't be measured by dollars and cents necessarily. It's measured by the grace of God that is dispensed to each one of us. Why? Because our God is a loving God. 
But here's what happens. A group of people unite together now. They haven't laid a single stone for the temple building. They build an altar because it's priority number one is worship is all we care about. It's God. They start bringing their offerings unto the Lord. Why? Because it's God. And they're choosing to obey the Scripture because this is what the law of Moses had told us to do and we got way far away from that and now that's why we got in some, some trouble here. So we're going to establish walking with the Lord in obedience again. And you watch what happens. Now they're just saying, oh, I, it's not just the sin offerings and the compulsory offerings. No, I want to give freely the free will offerings. And they gave unto the work and they gave unto worship because that was the heart of the matter. And so here's the place we all come to today is, and asking that question again is, do you know this love of God? Does it abide in you? That's a, the biggest question I can ask you today. Is the heart in you for worship today to give all that you have for all that He is? It is the challenge that He brings to us to unite together as one church. Jesus is the head. We are the body and we unite together. There's one God giving us one heart for one mission to accomplish His purpose. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus yet, this is your moment. Jesus Christ, the Lord, through the power of the Spirit of God, the very person of God, draws us to a relationship with God that we would know the Father. The Spirit of God convicts us, reveals truth. So maybe things that have been said today, this is like, wow, I've never heard that before. And, or it hits new in a way you've never heard something like that. And all of a sudden, God starts to reveal Himself and, and it seems so real. And this is, this is what I desire. I, I want to know the Lord. I want to know that I'm saved, that I have eternal life in Christ Jesus. I want to know that my sins are forgiven. I want to abide in this love that you're describing. I want to know God. And if that's your heart today, and that's the passion of where you are, the Scripture makes it very clear that when we, by faith, confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we are saved from our sin that separates us from God. And God, by His grace, grants us eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now what happened there? By faith, I call upon the name of the Lord. And I confess to Him. I'm, it's a confession, obviously, of, of the Lord Himself. Believing He's God. Believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that He died and rose again for me. It's a confession. I, I know I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. Lord, save me, please. I'm asking you. And maybe that's the prayer today that happens right in your heart, right in the seat you're sitting in. And maybe today God's rearranging the furniture of your heart because things have cluttered it and gotten out of order and the priorities are in the wrong spaces maybe or things have taken your attention and your devotion. And today's the day God says, no, priority number one, before all the stones get built and the walls and all this other stuff. No. The altar. It's the place of worship. 